and I told my wife I wasn't going to do the whole of John chapter 12, uh, just the first 28 verses. And she said, oh, that's, that's a good portion of scripture. Um, but we, I think that it does uh, cohere, and perhaps one of the parts will be something that we won't be spending a ton of time on, that, that often is spent a lot of time on, but that's okay. It gives us something to do on Wednesday nights uh, to go over those parts as well. Um, but uh, John chapter 12, um, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. May God add his blessings to this reading from his holy and inspired word. This was just the first 26 verses that we'll be looking at. Uh, there will not be a ton of time spent on this, but I, I don't think it's just academic to say, Who was Mary? Who was Mary? And this is Mary of Bethany. Is Mary of Bethany the same person as Mary Magdalene? Is Mary of Bethany and Mary of Magdalene the same person as the woman who had been forgiven much, the wayward woman? I think the answer is no and no. And there are some reasons for that. Um, one of them we talked about 
two weeks ago, and that is that Mary Bethany um, was described in the last chapter as the one who did what she does in this chapter, which will be the focus, actually, of our time together, which is anointing Jesus with expensive perfume. But also, Mary Magdalene is from a different place. Now, Jesus, born in Bethlehem, but from Nazareth. So, there are people who have made the argument, this person could be the same. I don't think so. She's known for different reasons, but she's also known as being from a different place. There's another story of a woman wiping Jesus' feet with her hair that occurs in the home of a guy named Simon. Jesus, did Jesus feed 5,000 people or did he feed 4,000 people? He fed both. I mean, like, but there's a lot of similarities. Like, didn't the disciples just forget it? Because there was like, aren't both of them there's bread and there's there's like little fish and then fish and the bread. Like, it's got to be the same thing. No, it's not the same thing. Oftentimes, what was recounted, what was remembered, was the fact that there were patterns in the things that Jesus was doing. But these miracles, the specific things that happened had different messages. We've talked before about the difference between 4,000 people being fed and 5,000 people being fed, and that when they had less to start with, they ended up with more at the end. The math of God that doesn't make sense to us. In the case of the anointing, there's a difference in the anointing that was at the start of Jesus' ministry. This is anointing at the end of Jesus' ministry. The other anointing is very much about that Jesus is forgiving sins, and he talks about that. This is absolutely a recognition and preparation for his burial. And they both happened at the house of Simon. One of them was Simon the leper, and the other was Simon the Pharisee. Point of Jewish law, lepers cannot be Pharisees. Pharisee can't, you can't be in that role if you're a leper. Okay, so... Does that apply to you guys at all? Do you care? Well, none of these Marys are prostitutes also. That's a whole other thing that came about from false teaching. Who's false teaching? Guys, we're, we're in a community church post-Reformation, so we get to say this. Not gleefully. I'm sad it happened, but we get to say it clearly. It was the Pope. <laughs> the Pope. The Pope was wrong. The Pope was wrong, and it was... Pope Gregory in 590 A.D., who conflated all three of these people. And then in the last century in Vatican II, they came back and said, hey, that was wrong. It's not the same. The Eastern Church has known it's wrong. Church fathers knew it was wrong. We can now know it's wrong. Mary is, is this Mary the sister of Martha? Yep. 100%. Yeah, that's who she is. Is she from Bethany? Mm-hmm. That's the way she's described. Is her brother Lazarus? Yep. That's who this is, okay? And it is interesting. I mean, there's, there's uh, in the New Testament, a pretty strong role, a certainly a very counterculturally strong role for women in the New Testament. And that should be instructive to the church up into today that women are absolutely um, different than men. God designed men and women in different ways. We're not the same. There are very 
big differences that are biological that God created, but women don't have less value. They don't have less importance. The first person who knows of Jesus' resurrection is actually the other Mary, not this Mary. <laughs> but Martha, in the previous chapter, her very clear proclamation of who Jesus is, her understanding of who Jesus is, and then this incredible example for us of what Mary does. So before we go there and stay there, before we focus on that, start again now with me in verse 9 to look at the rest of the chapter. The large crowd of Jews learned Jesus was there. They came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So there had been false messiahs. We talked about that. The false messiahs had even done some miraculous things. They had built some leaders around them. Had they ever healed people who were blind from birth? No, that wasn't one of the miracles they could do. Blind from birth even is interesting, right? Because with medicine, they could have maybe helped a guy with cataracts. I don't know. But the, there's a very clear blind from birth that was prophetic about the Messiah and that fake messiahs couldn't do. But guys, you know what brings a crowd even more than healing blindness? How about that guy was dead? Did people know that they were dead? Like, so <clears throat> there are people in American culture and academic circles who have tried to come up with naturalist explanations for everything. Um, the crossing of the Red Sea was actually the crossing of the Reed Sea. And once you understand tidal patterns and wind, you must understand that at times this became swampy and the people of Israel made their way across. Their explanations are stupid. They don't make sense. So the people made their way across a swamp, but all of the chariots got bogged down and the Egyptian soldiers died? I guess they weren't good at reading tidal patterns? That doesn't make sense. Over and over again, people come up with naturalist explanations. Oh, Jesus, um, you see, he, he wasn't actually dead. He, did the Romans know whether or not someone was dead? Did they have a way of figuring that out? Uh-huh, they sure did. And when he was stabbed in the side... Jesus had blood and water come out. It's not actually water, but it's describing the post-death separation of body fluids. He was dead. He became alive again. These miraculous things were miracles. Lazarus was not asleep. Remember, they think when he's saying, oh, Lazarus will get up there, like, oh, yeah, just let him rest, Jesus. That's what the disciples say. Let him rest. He, he. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Okay, sorry, you guys didn't get it. When I said asleep, I was speaking metaphorically. He's dead. He's dead. Lazarus was not only dead, he was dead and stinky. He'd been dead for four days. He was obviously dead and everyone knew it. Sometimes, I've, I've said when people become a Christian, that unbinding someone and helping them is part of our job with baby Christians. When they're stinky, they still carry some of the gross things that they were taking with them before. But that can also be a miraculous piece of showing what Jesus has done, that people carry something challenging with them. So Lazarus' resurrection made the people love Jesus as a Messiah. And part of it was, you know, they had been longing to overthrow Rome this whole time. They were not seeing Jesus as a spiritual savior. They were not seeing Jesus as Martha correctly saw him as the savior of the world, the son of God. Most high. That's not who they were seeing him as. They were seeing him as a guy with a lot of special powers that they had never seen before. And guys, in warfare, if you can reanimate dead people, it's, a pretty, it's pretty strong. It's pretty strong. Oh, yeah, you thought you killed my army? Huh. 
then you just walk past their bodies, well, they're all alive again. They're going to kill you. Okay? So these people are excited in the triumphal entry. They took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus has, over the cross, put King of the Jews. They're welcoming him as an earthly king who will rule and reign and throw off the shackles of Roman oppression. And that's what they've been waiting for. Verse 16 is good and interesting. If you look at the book of John, we talked about this. John ends his book by saying, I've written this that you might believe. I've written this so that you might believe. Okay? So did John write this down the next day? Are we reading the diaries of John as they happened? No. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, what does that mean? When he ascended, he ascended, right? That's what they're talking about. When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. That's a beautiful thing. These things had been written about him. What are these things? All of the prophecies of the Old Testament. All of the prophecies of the Old Testament that told of the coming Messiah. They started to connect the dots and go, that's what, ah, born in Bethlehem. Oh, over and over and over they saw that Jesus had been the perfect fulfillment of all prophecies related to the Messiah because they were about him. It was all about him. These things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. <clears throat> when we have a witness, I have told this story, I think, even here several times, but I'm going to tell it again. A dear friend of ours went to college, um, and of ours, my little brother's best friend, really, uh, but a good friend of mine went to college and majored in religious studies. And that was the beginning of the problems for him and his faith. And uh, after he had been in college, majoring in religious studies, learning about textual criticism, uh, he at some point said, Clayton, I don't think I believe in Jesus anymore. And I was very sad and we were talking and I said, what if I tried to convince you that, that I did not exist? That Clayton was just a construct for you that was useful, a bit older, can ask some questions about stuff, you can get some advice. I'm like, that's absurd. So well, why is that absurd? He said, because I know you. And I said, you know what grieves me is that I can say that about Jesus and you can't. These crowds couldn't be dissuaded. Oh, I don't, I, that's not, I mean, I don't think Jesus is really, that's not special. Because they had seen what he had done. All of us as Christians are the witness to the resurrection that has happened in our own hearts, that has happened in our own lives. We've gone from spiritual death to life, and we can't be talked out of that. If it's really happened to you, it's changed everything for you. It's changed everything in your life. So the new crowd didn't see it, but they heard about it. And the Pharisees were depressed because... The goal was to destroy Jesus before he could take their status. And now Jesus is the most popular. Is he getting too popular to kill? We don't know. It, it is still just so 
emblematic of all the failings of sinners in rebellion, that Jesus conquers death, and so they plan on killing him. When people are thinking physically and not spiritually, what they do doesn't make sense. Among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. I love this part. And I love this part because Daniel's not here right now, so we'll say, everybody in this room, this is how we got in. (laughs) All of us, this is us. Among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, Philip, did he have a Greek name or a Hebrew name? It was a Greek name. He had a Greek name. So the Greeks are like, it doesn't say like he was wearing a toga, his hair was parted in a Greek style. We, it doesn't say that. But somehow they were like, this is our, this is, maybe this is the Greek guy. This is our end, maybe. We're going to go with this guy. They came to Philip and asked him, we should see Jesus. Philip went and got Andrew. Guys, Andrew's role over and over again is to bring people to Jesus. Bring people to Jesus from the start when he's called. Bring people to Jesus, this little boy, all we got is this fish and these loaves, but I mean, here's what we got. And so Andrew goes with Philip and tells Jesus, these Greek people want to see you. And then here's Jesus' answer, 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. How He was glorified how? He was glorified in and through his obedience to death, even death on a cross. And his disciples later sought and received that honor of following him and the sacrifice of their lives. But when he says the Son of Man is being glorified, part of what he's talking about is that this is going to rip the temple curtain in two, and the relationship between God and man will only have one mediator, that is Christ Jesus. There will no longer be the, the proselytes, in this case the Greek guys, who are like, I would like to go to the temple. What do I need to do? How do I take the next step? What do I? The gospel will come forth in power, and it will be the good news for all that Christ died for their sins, that they can be forgiven. Then 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The Father honored Mary. Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus. This is a dinner in honor of Lazarus. A dinner in honor of Lazarus. Have you ever been at an event that's for someone, it's in honor of someone, and someone else like way more important shows up? I I do not, Thrive has not even invited any of the current, past, whatever, governors. Okay, we haven't done that. I think next year we're going to try to invite the, the new governor and the old governor. Okay, but we're not giving them a plaque or an award. I mean, whatever. Lots of people do that. That's not that's not the way it happens for us. Imagine that you're like city councilman so and so, and you've served for a while, and you're going to get your reward, and people are like, "Oh, I want to sit next to the city councilman." And then the governor comes in. He's sitting over there. It changes the focus of the room, doesn't it? It changes. It's, what about that one? 
Lazarus has been raised from the dead. That's giving him special status to some people. They're like, wait, well, look at Lazarus. Oh, look at our boy Lazarus. They're having a special meal in Lazarus' honor. It's about Lazarus. Everyone's focused on Lazarus, except Mary. She's focused on Jesus, and she understands that this resurrection of her brother's physical body is only a small portion of what is important and what it was a forerunner that points to the more important death, burial, and resurrection to come. Martha served. It's two little words. It's important. Martha is often cast as the bad guy. Oh, Martha. She didn't have the better portion. Because Martha and Mary weren't the same. They were sisters, but they were different. And they had different interactions with Jesus and both honored Jesus in different ways. Who has a more compelling testimony about who Jesus is? Martha. It's the last chapter. Who had the opportunity to physically care for Jesus more? Until this ointment time, who was Martha? Because Mary was sitting there listening to lessons and, and basking in who Jesus is and what he was teaching. But Martha was making food and getting it out. It is a false dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy to say, you know, don't be a Martha, be a Mary. Only Mary's good. No. They both honor Jesus in different ways. And all of us, by the way, is the body one thing? Goodness gracious, Randy and I pray for Lonzo Community Church that we have some people who are very different than us. And, and <laughs> because the body can't be all the same. It can't. And there are tons of people. I mean, I'm looking at all of you and feeling really encouraged and happy. But you guys are different, and you're serving in different ways. And that's beautiful, and that's needed. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? How much money is that? It's a lot of money. It's about a year's wages. A year's wages. Okay? So we're going to come back to that. A year's wages poured out on Jesus. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus knew what was to come, and Mary somehow, supernaturally, had a glimpse of what was to come and did this sacrificial and beautiful thing under the inspiration of obedience to God, to glorify Christ. Is... There's a, there's a funny like wordplay here that's in Greek in verse 6 that, that I'm just going to tell you because I thought it was funny. Um, he cared, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag. The word for carry the money bag and carry off money is the same word. And it's used to say really quickly in Greek, he was, a, he was a thief. He stuck his hand in the pot. He was skimming. He was skimming. So he wanted as much revenue as possible to come through so that he could skim. Guys, have we, the church, we, 
evangelical Christians in America, have we learned a lesson from this passage? I would argue no, and I would argue that often the voice of Judas is more prominent in our churches than the voice of Mary. The example of Mary is often met with a bunch of maybe well-meaning Judases, maybe not. Taking extravagant giving to God and making it something where we can constantly care for the physical needs of poor people while skimming some for ourselves sounds like way too much of what happens with church compassion. Is the church and its care for the poor supposed to primarily be focused on giving them sandwiches or on salvation? They need the gospel. In the book of Acts, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. And they point them to Jesus. The entire New Testament has example after example. In 1 Timothy and 2 Thessalonians, the care for the poor is to point them to Jesus and create lives for them where they, in quiet dignity, can work with their hands and can provide for themselves because they've been healed from the reasons that their spiritual poverty created such hopelessness that they couldn't. That's where we're trying to help people. There have been, that is a needed correction to what the church is doing today. Verse 8, the poor you always will have with you. Let me give my correction to that. Very few, but some of them are guys who I mostly agree with. Commentators use that verse to be like, so don't even worry about poverty. Don't even think about it. The poor will always be there, so what are you going to do? It's like gravity. Don't try to fly by flapping your arms, and don't try to care for the poor. That's stupid. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. It's not biblical. It doesn't look like the book of Acts. It doesn't look like care for widows. It doesn't look like what the Bible tells us to do. So our church can get this right corporately. Are we supposed to care for the poor? We are. Is the primary thing that poor people need the gospel or physical care? The gospel. That needs to be the center of our relationship. Why was the perfume what Mary had? And these are the questions that I think that we should be asking ourselves as to whether or not the church corporately, evangelical churches, get this. A pound of expensive ointment from pure nard was one of the easiest ways to save. They didn't have bonds. There wasn't a banking system like there is now. It was difficult if you had a year's worth of wages invested even in sheep. It was harder to bring around. This was so precious, I'm not going to go down. Danielle didn't even roll her eyes, but I can like, she's helped me so much as we two become one that I can see her rolling her eyes in the future if I went and spoke for five minutes about the way that perfumes made and whales and ambergris and I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. Suffice it to say, this is a pound of something that represented a year's wages and it was one of the ways that people saved their money. Guys, I don't have a year's worth of salary in the savings. Some people do, some people don't. Did she have 50 of these? Have you guys ever seen someone who's like, this is an important event, let's share a $30,000 bottle of wine. Uh, First of all, I, I do not understand how astrometrically people have ended up existing in this world who think that it's ever 
a reasonable thing to have a $30,000 bottle of wine. This is stupid. Sell it. Give it away. So now, in my Judas note, I don't think people are breaking open their $30,000 bottle of wine for Jesus. The point of bringing that up is that people who have a $30,000 bottle of wine that they're cracking at a meal, does that represent their life savings? No. It's not analogous at all. It's something real expensive that's real disposable and one-time use. But it doesn't represent what this represented to Mary. What this represented to her was everything. What this represented to her was giving of herself all that she had. Do I think that God wants us all to take our life savings and give it away? No. But I think he wants us all to be willing to. I think he wants us all to be willing to take everything we have and give it, if he tells us to. When the, Jesus talks to the rich young ruler, it says he went away sad because he had a lot. It would have been more than one of these jars that he would have had to give. But what Mary did represented the fact that everything she had, she wanted to give to Jesus in an extravagant way. It's very challenging for us to get the part about her hair, and there have been things that aren't true that have been written about it. This is part of the reason that people conflate Mary's hair being down with prostitution, with all these other things. Our culture is one of the cultures that deeply sexualizes things that aren't sexual. And it's very unfortunate, particularly as we seek to understand intimacy. She anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Was that the normal way of cleaning feet? It was not. In Jewish culture, did people usually have their hair up or down? They had their hair up. And it was considered extremely intimate as an act to have your hair down. They kept their hair up. I'm not going to try to explain, but if, you, if you're ever in New York and you see an ultra-Orthodox woman, I'm not going to try to tell the differences between Reformed and whatever, but ultra-Orthodox Jews to this day, uh, women do not lower their hair unless they're in the presence of only their husband. They keep their hair up and covered. This was an extremely intimate act, but it was not a sexual act. Intimacy with Jesus is part of what's missing when people go, how would I know if he told me to give my life savings away? How would I know what he told me to lay on the altar? How would I know what he's leading me to do? Guys, if you're waiting for this part of the sermon for me to say, this is what you need to do, the answer is you need to get intimate with Jesus. He doesn't tell us all to do the same thing, but he tells us all that if we want to save our life, we'll lose it. But if we're willing to give it all away for his sake, that's where we find our life. And what does that look like? In intimacy with Jesus, the one who knows us best loves us most. And Mary has now taken her life savings and poured it out for Jesus. And it didn't just impact her, it impacted everyone who witnessed it. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. If you think about that, when you think about people sacrificially serving, sacrificially laying down their lives, 
I was told a story of a of a guy whose whose next door neighbor he became very close to, and the guy every single day for seven years was with his wife most of the day, and she didn't know him during that entire time period. She had Alzheimer's and was in a assisted living, and she just didn't know him anymore. Seven years every day he was with her. The room was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. That is the kind of story that tells you so much about that person. And he wasn't doing it for himself. He was doing it for her. He was doing it because of his love for her. And it's extraordinary. It's way beyond the usual expectation. We should be living lives where people go, what in the world is that? Why, why, why are they doing that? I don't... Wait, who are you letting stay with you? Wait, what? What are you doing with your money? Wait, where are you going on your vacation? It was really sweet. I don't, I'm not trying to take away their treasures in heaven. But seeing the girls from Thrive say, oh, we have some time off. Let's go to Guatemala. Oh, okay, you're going to go to the beach? Nope, we're going to go to Guatemala and hang out with Nacho and street ministry. And That doesn't make sense in the world's perspective. But it's not happening because they're saying, what's the most fun? It's happening because they love Jesus. They want to follow him. They want to obey what he has for them. The example of Mary is an example for us of coming to Jesus' feet, abiding with him, and being ready to sacrifice everything we have for his glory. It won't always make sense to others, and it doesn't have to. But in order to know that you're walking in obedience and in order to discern what he's calling you to, the answer is intimacy. I've been praying about my job, not sure where I'm supposed to go. Where, what am I supposed to do with my job? Well, what, what are you reading in your, in your quiet time? Huh, well, I had a podcast, but it didn't seem to apply. Guys, how does God speak to us? Through his word. I really want to know what God wants me to do. Okay. What, what, what are you reading in the word? I'm not really doing that. Uh, then I don't believe you. You don't really want to know what God wants you to do. How do we sit at the feet of Jesus today? Read the word. Read his words. Listen to his voice. Ask him to guide you and direct you. And he will. He will and he does. And when he does, when we're living in intimacy, when we're willing to walk in obedience for his glory, he might ask us to give up not just worldly possessions, he might ask us to give up our very lives. And it won't be asking us to do anything more than what he's done. We were bought with a price. We need to honor him with extravagant obedience. Let's pray. Lord, we all have different things that represent that fragrance. We have different things that represent that being poured out in ways that glorify you. Our time being poured out our investments in others being poured out. 
our money, our possessions, our house, our jobs. There's so many ways that you call us to take up our cross and follow you. We pray that this group will be a people who are in intimate fellowship with you, who are sitting at your feet every day, who are recognized that you are the one who deserves honor at every meal. You are the one who deserves honor at every time and place as you are our Lord and Savior who has rescued us from spiritual death and brought us to life. God, we pray that we will honor you with obedience that doesn't make sense to those who don't know you. And we pray that we will support one another in walking in obedience, even if it seems extravagant. Help us to smell the sweetness of the sacrifice again and again in large and small ways of each other as we seek to follow you and obey your calling on our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.